just the fact that you, you exercise that muscle and start to go through it is a huge win. And it's not just a win for you. It's a win for every other woman that's sitting at that table. Welcome to the Art of Speaking Up, a podcast that empowers professional women to rise. I'm your host, Jessica Guzik. And in this show, I take you undercover into the stories and lessons that I learned, sometimes the hard way, throughout my career. I also talk with working women, leaders, and coaches to show you that no matter what your struggle is and no matter what your career goals are, you already have all the talent that you need to succeed. Welcome to the show. If you are new here, welcome. And if you've been listening, welcome back. I've been really excited for you to hear today's conversation. When I interviewed Camila, today's guest, I was really in awe of her and her story. And in this conversation, we hit on a lot of the big topics that I think so many of us have experienced or are experiencing, topics like perfectionism and personal growth and setting boundaries at work and all of that good stuff. But one of my favorite things about this conversation in particular is we get into this nuance of self-confidence that I don't think always gets talked about that I have found very helpful personally in my career and in my life and that you might find really helpful as well. And that is that it's not only about just feeling confident and finding ways to speak up and be bold and do all the things that we all want to do and are hopefully learning to do, but it's also about getting to know all of the different parts of ourselves and feeling like all of those parts of ourselves are acceptable and can be expressed and can be a part of who we are. Because I know so many of us in our professional lives sometimes struggle with this question of, can I be myself in this work environment? How much can I show? And I think the more that we struggle with that and the more that we're kind of battling and going back and forth and trying to define our identity in the professional environment that we're in, the harder it can be for us to develop confidence because we don't have a strong base from which to develop that confidence. And in Camila's story and in this conversation, you're going to hear about how her identity as a human being evolved and developed and strengthened. And through that evolution, how it helped her build confidence at work from a very core, solid, foundational place of knowing who she is and using that as the foundation upon which she built her sense of power and confidence at work. If you are someone who is trying to find your voice, trying to figure out how to show up in a way that feels more powerful and feels better for you, there is so much in this conversation that I think you will take away. I loved her story. I'm so excited for you to hear it. And with that, let's meet Camila. My name is Camila. And I'll give you my, my 10,000 foot view. It really started when I was in college, maybe even earlier. I was studying psychology as an undergrad and was very interested in understanding more about the brain and emotions and specifically decision making. And I was working with a very prestigious research lab at the time doing data collection and was hoping that I would get the opportunity to be hired as a full-time research assistant. I really wanted to get into academia. And 
it was around the time of my junior year, I received notice that I would be getting an offer to come on as a full-time research assistant after graduation. And after I looked at the salary and I looked at the reality of my student loans, I had a, a tough life is unfair moment. I'll never forget. I was in the library. It was maybe one or two in the morning. I was studying for something. <laughs> and I, I had that moment where I realized, oh my God, I can't, I won't be able to accept this job because I won't be able to afford to stay in, in New York where I was at the time. And I won't be able to, to pay off my student loans. So I did a, a quick change and I picked up a second degree in economics my senior year. And I decided to focus on finding work that would be lucrative enough for me to be able to deal with my student loans and stay in New York. So I ended up transitioning from that research assistant position into a job at a major brokerage firm, a big bank in New York. And from there, I ended up doing a little bit of management consulting. And I'm kind of a, a career counselor's worst nightmare in that I have <laughs> like so many different interests and so many different things that have been in my background. And so it actually ended up being a good thing when I connected with an economist who was interested in starting a macroeconomic research firm in New York. And he was moving over from London and he needed someone who was going to be capable of doing everything from helping out with analysis to finding and building out an office to hiring and training employees. And so having worked in a number of different companies and industries, it actually ended up being really helpful that I could draw from all these different experiences. And so I helped found this macroeconomic research firm. And we were working with hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, and also some central banks. And that was, you know, a really intense <laughs> experience in, in the world of, of finance and, and policymaking. And then from there, I ended up moving back to the West Coast, back to California, and dabbling in private wealth management for a little bit. And now I'm at a company that is focused on what I wanted to do in the first place, which is helping people learn about and build skill around emotions. So unknowingly, this kind of zigzag path put me exactly where I needed to be to get to do what I wanted just uh, 12 years after after I started. <laughs> you finally came full circle. Yep, exactly. One thing that I've been asking guests recently is where they're trying to grow and shift in their careers now in the present day. So what is something you've been either working on or thinking about professionally? I'm trying to learn how to, say, kill the perfectionist in me. I think it's interesting. We learn how to behave a certain way at work pretty early on in our career. And I'm starting to transition from the role as the doer and the order taker into a more expansive role as someone who's thinking more broadly, making you know bigger decisions. And so in order to do that, you have to learn how to pull yourself out of the details of, of what's in front of you. And so interestingly enough, I'm doing a lot of unlearning right now, even when it comes down to something like how perfectly formatted an email is to a client, which 
in finance, uh, there's a certain level of, of perfectionism and expectations that serve you quite well in that in that industry. And now that we're forging a new path with this this new company I'm at, it's a, a quite different environment to be in. So I'm trying to to unlearn some of the habits that may have served me in the past and get a little bit more comfortable trying out something new and not being afraid of stumbling or failing in the process. Do you feel like you're moving forward on that? Or are you getting some resistance? Like, how has that been? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think, just calling it out. And luckily, you know, the people I work with, we're all very open, given the nature of what we do now. Um, we're all very open about these areas that we're working on developing. And so it's been something we've been able to talk about openly. And I think one of the things I was actually asked to do was to send a really bad email. Like that was like <laughs> one, like it's so simple, but it's kind of wild that you can go from running and building up an organization to trying to learn how to be okay pressing send when there might be a typo somewhere. <laughs> um, and so there's definitely still resistance. Like I feel it in my, I really feel it in my body actually, when mm. you're up against that edge of growth and expansion. And I'm actively trying to do the opposite of what my training has led me to do in an effort to try and be more open and expansive and broader in the way I approach my work. This is so interesting because it's reminding me and like bringing up this idea of whenever you decide you want to get better, like when it's time to up level, you you almost have to like down level. <laughs> so like as part of your growth process, having to regress and like feel this enormous discomfort before you can be in this new place. And to recognize that each of those building blocks that you learn along the way are really important and they serve you in certain times in your career and, and in your life. And I think that there's a certain level of mastery that you start to want to reach towards that requires you to kind of break that down and rebuild it in a way that actually serves the way that you want to move through the world versus the way that the world kind of shaped you to move as a result of just trying to get started in your career. And if we go all the way back to the earlier part of your career, when you developed some of these other habits, we talk a lot on the show about early career struggles. And so <laughs> if we rewind back to then, I <laughs> heard a giggle. I guess, what would you say back then either was tough or an area where you were trying to grow? I think, I, I mean, I'm a Admittedly, I would say I'm a workaholic <laughs> in, in recovery. <laughs> and so I think there's a certain eager energy and enthusiasm that you can have when you start off in your career. You really want to show people that you are reliable and that you'll be available and ready to do whatever needs to get done. And I actually ended up I was probably by my mid-20s. I, I had a number of people in my life warning me that if I continued to sleep with my phone on my chest, answering any communication I got at an odd hour, that I might burn out. And I always thought, there's no way that's going to happen. Like, I've totally got what it takes. I can I can absolutely just go and go and go. And And it actually ended up being the case that I did end up burning out after my role at that macroeconomic research firm, which was really fulfilling, 
but I think I was afraid to set boundaries around my own needs that were separate from work. And I think that's an ongoing process for a lot of us, especially in this age where we're connected all the time. I mean, most of us have you know, more than 10 inboxes or notifications that we're, you know, open and paying attention to all these different applications that we're using. And it's hard to remember that not only is it okay to set boundaries that are going to be beneficial to your well-being, but it's really essential if you want to be able to perform at your best with whatever it is that you're doing. It's so hard when you're earlier in, in your career. I mean, I'm speaking from my experience, but I'm curious to hear yours because, you so badly want to do good and win everyone over and build your reputation. And so it's like, it's a constant dance, I feel. Absolutely. And, and even just if you're the type of person that already has that at the forefront of how you work, that's going to come through in everything that you're producing, the things that you're involved with, the areas where you're trying to add value And just trust that there's a a certain piece of that that will always come through, but it doesn't have to at the cost of your mental and your physical health. That's so true. And it's so interesting. And I think the word trust, well, it's been really present for me lately. And I've been thinking a lot about that because a lot of times it is an illusion. Like more isn't getting done. It's not necessarily better. It's just like a skepticism or a fear that makes you feel like you have to just like go, go, go. But it's not real. Like it it is just a lack of trust. Yeah, absolutely. And you might hear this again and again, and it might be cliche, but like it really is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And when you're excited, you're starting something new, you want to build trust and relationships with the people that you're working with, and you want to be seen as reliable, it's important to remember that it's okay to leave at a particular time because you want to exercise or you want to spend time with your friends or your family. And that actually prioritizing those things will ultimately serve you in the long run so that you really can show up and be your best self versus getting to a point where, you know, you're so tired or exhausted, you know, you're so burnt out that you have trouble even being excited about what you're doing anymore. And I see that with peers, I mean, just in about every industry where there's there's a moment of reckoning where you've got to recognize that you have to take care of yourself first. I totally agree. And I want to I want to dig a little bit more into some of your early career days and your evolution. You were in management consulting, you were in finance. These are very male-dominated spaces. And I would love to hear from you as a woman what that was like for you. Hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> something worth adding, just as a bit of my background, is you know, my dad's an artist. Uh, my mom is a social worker with hospice. So I hadn't ever picked up a copy of the Wall Street Journal until I think the day before I started. Um, And so I I came in already feeling like it was a very foreign place, just given my background. And I actually didn't tell my parents about my first job on Wall Street until about four or five months in. And I had to kind of sit them down. (laughs) And, And it was a coming out in a way where I I had to confess that I was working for this big bank in New York. And my dad was, you know, disappointed that I hadn't chosen to do something, you know, more creative. But 
getting back to this idea of being in a hyper-masculine environment. So I, first of all, I had that lens as kind of a scientist and not a judge when I was in these, these institutions. And I did see, unfortunately, a lot of the stereotypes about Wall Street that were even worse than, than what you, know, you could imagine in terms of behavior that took place, um, power dynamics that I would see, especially I remember starting out as an intern, the way that the, the person I was working for at the time would treat his interns. And even, I mean, I, I'll never forget getting a comment when I was on the train going downtown ran into someone else who was working at the same bank who was a guy. And he asked me which floor I was working on because there was this whole hierarchy around, you know, whether or not you were up on the the 50th floor or whatever, or, you know, the 12th floor. And I told him I was on floor 50 and he said, Oh, you know, they always, they always have the hot chicks up there. Oh, (laughs) and I was, I mean, horrified and also just so, angry that there was no, I mean, idea or respect or, I mean, I think things hopefully are a bit different today, given that there's much more of a dialogue around this kind of stuff. But that's just like one very minor example of the kind of things I would see show up in those environments. And, you know, another thing I I witnessed, entering this very hyper-masculine environment I also saw what I later learned is called this queen bee syndrome, where there would be sometimes these really awesome women who had worked their way up pretty high into positions at this institution. And in a way, it's almost like they had to check their femininity at the door and they had to check their womanhood at the door in order to be part of the boys club. So I would watch women who were older and much more successful who would kind of join in or at least be complacent in the the sort of uh, toxic <laughs> environment around masculinity versus femininity. And, and that was something that was not just disappointing, but it really led me to question whether or not there's a way for us to fully embrace what it means to be a woman, whatever that means to you, and fully embrace your femininity and fully embrace the fact that you are powerful in that and that you don't have to take on this super masculine role or identity or participate in kind of what they call the locker room talk in order to be seen, heard, and respected. And I think luckily there's enough of a broader dialogue happening just in general. It's something we talk about now. We see it in the media. We see instances you know, with I mean, something as monumental as the Me Too movement, where I think there's a new level of awareness. And my hope is that if I were to step into that same place today, it would already start to look quite different as a result of us calling out just how unacceptable that kind of behavior really is. I hope so. And I think this is a place where so much value gets lost because there's two things. One is like, I don't think this all happens on a conscious level, but I think like there's an unconscious kind of adaptation that happens with women. And I think it can manifest as just like these fuzzy feelings of discomfort. 
And then I think those feelings of discomfort can get internalized as I'm awkward or there's something wrong with me because I feel uncomfortable. And, you know, maybe part of that is true, but probably not a big part. I think so much of it is the environment and the way in which, like, I don't think we always even realize how little space there is for true femininity to just exist in its raw, natural form. Oh, absolutely. And you even saw it like at this particular bank, there was a really strict dress code, which I thought was very interesting. And women had to dress in a very particular way. And it's one thing for a man to to put on a suit. It's another to, at that time, you know, you're expected to wear closed-toed pumps and pantyhose and a skirt that had to be of a particular length. I mean, it was pretty old school in that sense. And even the way you were expected to have tasteful makeup. And I just, it was kind of astounding just how, in order to create this idea that you are somehow reliable or trustworthy, that you had to fit into a very constrained box with how you showed up in that environment. It's so interesting because as I'm hearing you say this, to me, in a way you're describing the world, just (laughs) it's just like a little bit less obvious. But I think like, I think this is where the self-esteem challenge of being a female comes into play and then spills over into work, which is just that there is an expectation. And sometimes the expectation is just so embedded into the world and the culture that we live in that we don't even realize it's there. And it's like, this is how a woman should be. And I just want to undo all of it. I want it all done. I want it gone. (laughs) Well, it's, it's, I, I mean, I'm happy to say that with the light that's getting shown on, I mean, there's a lot of ugliness and then there's also just a lot of unconscious language and behavior and these kind of paradigms that have existed that now we're kind of bringing into light. We're taking a closer look at. And I mean, I'm happy to say I was actually in a meeting the other day with an older gentleman, really accomplished, really successful author. And he was talking about how he very conscientiously, when he was using these examples that he would illustrate about certain uh, business scenarios that he writes about, that it was really important to him that they used the same number of she's as they did he's in reference to the examples that he was writing about. And this was an issue he had brought up 15 years ago, which at the time was pretty unconventional. And now, I mean, that's something that to hear that was so refreshing. And it's also like, yeah, duh, like we should absolutely, you know, or even taking it a step further. I mean, that's a whole other conversation around what all this kind of nonsense around gender even really means. Mm -hmm. But I, I think, you know, the first part is just being able to recognize that Yes, there are these constructs in place that have really constrained the way that each of us feel like we can move through the world, regardless of what gender we are or where we are on that spectrum. And the first piece is, okay, let's be more conscious of this in the way that we talk about it and also create a space where people can feel safe sharing how that impacts them. Because I think a lot of time it's not some sort of bad intent that put these things in place in the first place. It's just conscious versus unconscious behavior. And, and now people are talking about it. So it's it's changing. And the fact that 
we see a little bit of resistance from certain folks in the media with, I mean, some of the comments that you read and you're just like, can you believe he actually said that? To me, that's a sign that people are getting uncomfortable because things are changing and those constructs are starting to be looked at and we're starting to make different decisions as people in terms of how we want to shape the world for the future. And staying on this topic Mm -hmm. of being a woman and your femininity in particular, can you tell listeners about your dance career and how that interplayed (laughs) with your day job, your day career? (laughs) Yeah, I kind of glazed over that with my 10,000 foot view, didn't I? Um, (laughs) So something... (laughs) When I was was working, this maybe contributed to some of that burnout I was talking about, I ended up accidentally stumbling into what became a, a career in burlesque in New York City, which for those of you who, who don't know, burlesque is this awesome art form. It's a bit of vaudeville kind of cabaret history to it. The word burlesque actually means to make fun of or to poke fun at. And typically, if if you haven't been to a burlesque show, I highly suggest that you go to one. But typically in these shows, you would have an opportunity to, as a burlesque performer, create an act where there's usually a strip tease of some kind involved. And in some cases, it might just be something really glamorous and beautiful. Uh, If you're familiar with feather fans and the kind of vintage look or appeal or someone like Dita Von Teese. There's that kind of style of burlesque. And then there's a a whole other realm that's called neo-burlesque that's a bit more um, like performance art. So you could decide to build an act that's really funny or silly or has some sort of political commentary and choose to express yourself that way. So I ended up stumbling into what became, you know, pretty regular three or four nights a week that I would be performing <laughs> in addition to to my work on Wall Street. And at the time, I really had two separate identities. I had who I was during the day and the work that I did during the day. And then there was my stage name and my stage persona who worked at night and that person had a totally different set of friends and community compared to the people that I worked with during the day. And I think that a big part of how that became such a big part of my life was because I am a very dynamic person. I have lots of different interests and different ways I want to show up in the world. And I felt so constrained and constricted by the expectations in in finance in particular that not all the parts of who I am got a place to shine. And so I had to create this outlet for myself to exist. And in some ways, I felt more like myself when I was in full drag, as I would say, with, you know, the makeup and the hair and the wigs and the lashes. (laughs) Um, I felt more like me in those moments than I did when I had to put on a suit and walk into, you know, an old mahogany wood conference room with uh, a lot of older white gentlemen at the table. (laughs) And as you did that, so you have Camila during the day and then you have Mm -hmm. Camila dancing at night. Mm -hmm. How did those two kind of meld together and how did your overall sense of self either evolve or get stronger doing both of those at once? Yeah, that's a good question. And 
I think there's a couple of ways that that came through. I think I have a really concrete example of the first time I actually developed an act. It was it was part of a student showcase. And my intention was never to start getting hired to do this professionally. I, I did this student workshop. I thought I would maybe get you know, one opportunity at our student showcase to do this on like, it was like at a, on a Monday night or something. And I didn't tell anyone about it in my life because it was so intensely personal. And really, I just wanted to challenge myself to do something that was completely out of my comfort zone. I had never been in theater. I had never been on a stage in my life before. And something about having the chance to make art and use my body as part of that and to do that in a very public way on stage really scared the shit out of me. And that's usually when my my interest in something is peaked. Like, I think I had a similar feeling about studying economics, actually. <laughs> so, um, you know, I really wanted to understand how money worked. And that really freaked me out because I had no background in it. And so naturally, I went charging in. So same thing happened creatively with burlesque. And I ended up getting hired and and booked really, again, not the intention going into it, but I got an email from the person who helped produce the, the first show I was in that a producer was there and they ran New York's longest running cabaret shows on 42nd Street near Times Square and that they were interested in booking my act. And I didn't even know what that meant. But uh, I just said yes, because I had this costume and I had this thing I had developed. And <laughs> I'm laughing because it's such an absurd act. <laughs> I should just I'll, I should just tell you what it is so that you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so um, typically in, in a lot of burlesque shows, you'll see these really beautiful, glamorous costumes and you get to see every type of body type. And it's I mean, it's a really special art form and special community. But in my case, instead of doing something that was a bit more glamorous, I actually <laughs> I was inspired by a New York City subway rat that I saw running across the tracks <laughs> at Grand Central <laughs> while I was um, commuting home from work one day. And I was listening to a song called Filthy Gorgeous by the Scissor Sisters. Don't know if you're familiar, but if you're not, you should oh, yeah. definitely listen. And as I was listening to the lyrics, you know, because you're filthy and you're gorgeous, I look at this fat rat that's bumbling across the tracks. And it was like this aha moment, like, okay, that's it. That's what I want to do. And so I developed and, and created this costume of this giant rat costume. <laughs> and I stripped down to become the typical woman that you would see walking down Fifth Avenue with her, you know, Hermes and Chanel shopping bags, because my, my office was on Fifth Avenue at the time. And it was kind of a love letter to, to New York, and then also a way for me to express some deeper feelings I had about, <laughs> about the, the worlds I was operating in. So anyways, that, that was the, the first act I created, got picked up by a couple of different shows. And I'll never forget how this came into my my actual day, you know, my muggle life, as I called it. And <laughs> um, when I stepped into a conference room, and this was for a, a particular contract negotiation, and in a situation where I would have 
typically felt really intimidated because everybody in that room was male and they were at least 30 years older than me. I stepped into this situation where I would typically feel myself shrinking a little bit. And I think we've all had those moments where you're sitting at the table and you're wondering, you know, am I, do I really know what I'm doing? Do I really deserve to be here? That kind of imposter syndrome that sets in. And I, I remember having this thought, which was, okay, I just did some really crazy shit last night in a room full of strangers <laughs> in New York City of all places. So that what I did in terms of expressing myself creatively, that was scary. That was actually something worth having some nerves about. But coming into this room to talk about money with these guys, that's like a totally manageable thing. Uh, that's not, it's not as deeply personal as, as what I had done felt. So it was this big shift in, if I can do that and I can, you know, express myself creatively, freely with no inhibition, then everything at work is like way more manageable than that. That's like deeper level work (laughs) on a personal level. And so I found that over time, getting to get more and more comfortable expressing my creative parts of myself through burlesque gave me a different level of confidence that I don't think would have been possible in my my work life. It just made everything feel much more manageable. And also it just reminded me that, you know, it's work. This is where all the problems are actually solvable. But when you start diving into, you know, creative expression you start entering some deeper waters where maybe things aren't as concrete and maybe aren't as solvable. So does that answer your question? Oh my gosh, yes. And I think that it's it's not only fascinating, but I think it's really important for anyone listening, which is the problem is showing up at work or if someone is having a problem that's showing up in the workplace, the solution, as your story proves, can happen somewhere else and often does happen somewhere else. And I think that that's, I think that's really powerful because I think a lot of times it's just growth that needs to happen. Absolutely. And, and also, you know, that's, it's a pretty extreme example in my life. <laughs> if you can tell, um, I've got, you know, I've, I'm a pretty intense person in terms of my, how I approach work, how I approach living, how I approach love. That's not going to be the same for everyone. Um, The thing that's really important to take away from that is like you said, if you have these other parts of you that need to exist in the world in some way, and maybe you are in a certain job or a profession that doesn't give you the opportunity to feed those parts of yourself, there is almost always something really magical and impactful waiting for you in the things that bring you energy. So if it's, you know, taking a a certain class or learning about something that you're just curious about, even if it has nothing to do practically with what you're doing on a day-to-day basis, you just have no idea how that can cross-pollinate into your everyday work life, your home life. I mean, that's where expansion waits is if you can check in with yourself and see what excites you, trust that, lean into that and and also challenge yourself to do things that, you know, might might scare you a little bit because there could be something really, I mean, spectacular waiting around the corner for you. 
Uh, I agree. There's just so much there. And I think sometimes it can feel scary to follow something new. It's kind of like you, what you were saying, like, we know, like, we feel the excitement, we feel the tug. Like, I do think we have this inherent wisdom that knows the answer for us. And I think we can be a little scared to follow it. And I, I also think like, I think there's a fear that it'll work. Like, I think there's a fear that the story we've created about ourselves that'll keep us small. Like, there's a fear of letting go of that story. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And there's this, again, it's an illusion that somehow you're not going to succeed or be held or, you know, be safe (laughs) if you don't kind of fall in line. And just something to, to bring up, kind of in the same vein is that society makes a lot of money off of making women in particular feel really bad about themselves. So there's a lot of money to be made off of thinking that you aren't tall enough, skinny enough, you don't have the right clothes, you don't have the right hair. Like those are ways of creating artificial needs. And that I think society and and a lot of companies as a whole have really capitalized on And it gets in a lot deeper than we realize. And just to call out that if you have those moments where you're doubting your worthiness, a big part of that isn't your fault. There's been a lot of messages that we've all been receiving in a number of different ways throughout our lives that really do make you question whether or not you are enough, or if you know what you're doing, or if you're smart enough. And so when that little voice or that inner critic comes up, First, it's totally normal, regardless of you know what you've achieved or, or where you are in your career or how old you are. And also, it's a problem that we share collectively. And I think when we can call out that that's happening, we have a much bigger opportunity to do something about it. And so if you've ever had that moment where, let's say you're sitting in a meeting and you have an idea or somebody says something that you think, you know, it might not be a good idea. Maybe there's something you're disagreeing with. And we've all had that moment where we start to kind of shrink in our own thoughts. And and instead of just saying something, you know, you kind of feel yourself get smaller and then the opportunity passes and you go, should I said something? Should I not said that? Maybe you ruminate about it. I don't know. But you're not alone in that experience at all. And I think we really need each other to acknowledge that we're all kind of swimming against that together at any age and that we all really need each other to um, be brave and to try saying something or sharing the idea. And when you feel that shrinking happening, that's information for you to recognize that there's a little edge of growth right there for you. It's an invitation and it's an invitation for you to, to recognize something is happening here that is making me question myself. This is my moment to start to counteract that. And it's a pretty important piece of the work that I think we all have to do as women in the world, and especially right now, is to lean into that and to, to try and challenge ourselves to push back. It's, it's a really radical thing to love yourself in a world that doesn't necessarily create conditions to make that easy. I completely agree. And I think I don't think the world that is making all this money off of making us feel so insecure 
wants us to figure all of this out and especially doesn't want women to start banding together in this way. And this isn't yet happening at scale in the workplace. Like, if every single woman was like thinking, how can I lift all other women? And if this was truly happening at scale, I think a lot could happen. And I think we're just, I think part of the reason it's not happening is because there's so much vulnerability in sharing how we feel and what we're experiencing. And I think that there's an illusion that we're all alone in it in our own silo. And I think that's why a lot of like the lifting each other up isn't yet happening at a scale that it could be happening at. Yeah, because we're not, it's not like a thing that we're wearing, you know, on our, it's not like something that's on our forehead that says, hey, I'm feeling it too, because we all are. And and we're also all watching and learning from each other. I mean, we're social animals. Like when when somebody else decides to push past their quivering voice in a meeting and you can, you know, we've all been there where you can feel the discomfort and you see someone go, you know what, I'm going to do it anyways. I mean, we we all benefit from taking those risks and even the little mini risks. It doesn't have to be something big. And celebrate when when you do actually say yes to that invitation and you feel that discomfort and you go, okay, I'm going to do it. Like, give yourself a moment to go, you know what? I said the thing that was on my mind. Whether or not it ended up, you know, being the next thing that was taken onto the whiteboard or whatever, just the fact that you you exercise that muscle and start to go through it is a huge win. And it's not just a win for you. It's a win for every other woman that's sitting at that table, whether or not they are you know, above you or, or below you or have more or less experience. And what you said about how when you feel yourself getting smaller, you feel yourself shrinking, that's an invitation and there might be an avenue there for growth. I, I want to talk for a second about feelings of stuckness because I know like in my most difficult points, that didn't seem possible. Like those feelings of shrinking just felt like forever awfulness, infinite awfulness that would, (laughs) you know, be a part of things forever. And it was really difficult for me to see that I could change, to see that my confidence could grow. And so if someone is in that mental place of stuckness, is there anything like if if that feels really hard or they're doubting that that change is possible, is there anything that you could share or anything that you would want to advise them to do? Hmm. So we're, we're talking about being stuck. And, and I think about the word stagnation, or even there's like a, there's a psychological term for it, learned hopelessness. When we create this idea that it's always going to be this way, or I never, you know, we're using these very extreme, big, broad terms to describe what it is that we're experiencing. We don't get to actually put that that experience or that feeling in its place. I'm going to use the example of, of anger. So let's say if I tell you I'm angry, what I'm actually telling you is I am anger embodied, like I am anger as a whole (laughs) versus I am feeling anger in my body or in this moment where you create a space between what it is that you're experiencing and that emotion or feeling that you have. And when you create that little space, it actually kind of puts a little capsule around it and makes it manageable because to tell you I'm feeling angry. It just means that there's this thing that's happening right now. 
Um, what are we going to do about it? Versus I am angry where there's really not something you haven't, you haven't divorced yourself from the feeling. And I'm setting that up as an example because when we're feeling stuck or like we, you know, are always going to feel a certain way, we've, we've decided to shrink our horizon and make our whole world about what it is that we're feeling in this moment. So I think if there is an opportunity to ask yourself, well, how do you want to feel? Like, what is it that, what, if you picture your best self, who does she look like? What is she spending her energy thinking about or doing in life? You can actually create that separation where it's not just about where you're at right now, but there's where you want to be. And you can't really know where you want to go until you know where you are. So the first thing is to to recognize I'm feeling stuck. That's step one. And I don't want to feel this way. Okay, cool. Now we have something to work with. So you don't want to feel stuck. Well, what do you want to feel? So let's say the next piece is that you want to feel excited or inspired. Now you have something to start working with. Okay, well, when have there been times in your life that you have felt excited or inspired? Even if you have to go all the way back to like your childhood, like the stuff that you got really jazzed about, then you have something you can start to write down and, and or think about and work with that's a little more concrete and takes you out of that immediate experience of of finality, of, of thinking that this is just how things are. So I, I, I know that was a, a bit long, but I, I think it's a framework that works for, for just about anything from an emotion you're having in this moment to much bigger existential affects that we have or, or feelings that we have about our place in the world. How do you want to feel? That's the first question. And then you can kind of take things from there. That's so powerful. I was just listening to that and letting it sink in for myself because, yeah, I think that ability to separate is so important. And I'm going to pivot into the listener question if you're ready for it. Yeah, yeah, let me hear it. So she says that her manager is not a very good listener. He is a nice person, but he is such a talker and it can be incredibly difficult to get him to listen to me. He will literally ask me a question and then go on to just answer it himself. (laughs) I've dealt with that before. How do I respectfully ask for some space for my ideas to be heard? The thought of speaking to him about this makes me anxious. Do you have any suggestions? Sincerely struggling to get a word in. Well, I, first, I think we can all relate to that experience and, and that feeling of not actually being heard or having space to be heard. I think there's a couple of things going on here. So we're talking about a manager, right? Yes. Something that might surprise people is that managers need feedback too. And often, especially executives, are protected from information that would actually be really helpful and beneficial to their own development too, because we're, we're all constantly, you know, works in progress. And so it's not to say that this is a blanket statement. There are some people who may not be open to feedback, but just kind of laying that foundation there. And almost always, if there's some kind of friction in a relationship, there is 
some kind of miscommunication that's taking place. And what I mean by that is if we were to ask said manager, hey, is your intention to make your you know, employee feel unseen and unheard? They would probably be mortified <laughs> and say, no, that's not what I'm trying to do. You know, I want to support them or I want them to be as productive as possible or whatever, you know, their guiding principles may be. If they're a good manager, then they're going to want to help you develop and grow. And so I think there might be, and I don't know if you guys have weekly meetings or, or what your dynamic is there, but if you're willing to be brave and to do it for me and to do it for Jess and to do it for everyone else that's listening right now, <laughs> if there is an opportunity to, again, identify what it is that's happening but from a non-judgmental place, it's just, hey, something's happening that you might not realize is landing the way that it is for me as someone that's being managed by you. Could we take a few minutes to unpack that? Because I, I, I'm not sure we're, we're understanding each other or that we're you know, totally clear with each other. And maybe, just maybe, it's possible that you can bring this up in a way that's um, constructive for both of you. Because maybe this manager doesn't even recognize, maybe it's unconscious behavior, most likely it's unconscious behavior, that they're not actively creating space for you to, to be seen or heard. And maybe if you tell them, hey, this is an area I'm working on, I really want to work on uh, growing in this particular area, maybe it even fits into your like quarterly or annual reviews or however you guys do that then it becomes like a constructive point that you can work on together. And it becomes about you and your development, not necessarily about what that manager's, you know, doing wrong. And, and then you guys can be, you know, working together towards helping you grow in that area. But really what you're doing is, is called, it's a thing called up managing, <laughs> but um, I, we could, we could all benefit from it. And, and also you're definitely not alone in that experience. And now I'm going to ask you the closing questions, which is my favorite part. The first one is about the title of the podcast, which is The Art of Speaking Up. And I like to ask every guest to share what that means to them and why it's important. Hmm. The Art of Speaking Up. Well, since you're listening to this, we have the opportunity to speak directly, regardless of, of when you're hearing this. I want to remind you that you are here for a very important reason and that your presence here at this time in this place really matters, especially when the world is evolving and changing and growing. We really need you to remember just how important you really are. And what I mean by that is we need to see you, we need to hear you. However, your most authentic way of showing up in the world is. For some people, it might be that they're more extroverted. For others, it might be that they're you know more introverted. I'm not saying that we all have to get up and shout our intentions on the conference table. But what I am saying is that who you are in your truest sense has a lot of value in this world. And we really need you to work on finding that authentic voice and letting us see it, hear it, and celebrate it. So 
that is really, for me, when I think of the art of speaking up, it's a lot deeper than what it might sound like on the surface. It's that we need you to show up authentically in the world and to know that you are so held and you are so supported. There are generations of women that had to suffer (laughs) in order for every single one of us to be here. And we all have your back. Every single one of us that has this intention of helping each other speak up, we're all here and supporting you at any moment that you decide to step into that invitation to show the world who you really are. Uh, I love that so much. I'm so excited to listen back to that again and again. How amazing. Oh, that was so beautiful. It's from my heart to, to each of yours. Mm, I felt it in my heart a lot. And for the final question, the context for the final question is that I started this show because I had a difficult time in my career and didn't really have a mentor or anyone to guide me through it. And I started this show for anyone out there who might be going through something difficult or who's just trying to become more empowered. Are there any last little tidbits or nuggets outside of those amazing thoughts that you just shared that you would want to leave the listeners with as we close out? I want to let you all in on a little secret, which is that it doesn't end. This process of triumphs and tragedies and and everything that's in between is at no point will you have, regardless of how much awesome work you do on yourself and in life, it doesn't stop. And that struggle and also the beauty and the growth and all the goodness that comes from it, this is part of what it means to be human. Sometimes it's really messy. Sometimes it's really beautiful. Sometimes it's really confusing and it's really hard. But that is the nature of life as we're living it. And so I bring that up because I want you to know that I think we get this like illusion that if we just get this job or if we just get this, you know, whether it's getting married or starting a family or getting the house or a certain net worth or whatever it is, learn how to be comfortable and find the beauty in the whole spectrum of the struggles and the things that we get to celebrate as well, because there is no brass ring. There's no one thing that you're going to get or do that's going to to be the end all be all. And the sooner that you know that, the sooner you can get to work on actually being cool with the fact that that's like part of what life is about and that we're all in it together. I love that. It takes the pressure off. Yes. Like, like there's not, and, and it's so important to just remember that A, you're not alone and B, this is what it is. It's, 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 this is what life is about is those, those struggles are again, these are invitations for you to heal and for you to grow and for you to expand and hopefully get to a place where you are able to thrive and live a life that you really love, even with all the little rough edges that it can have. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. I hope you loved Camila as much as I do. It was such a joy to talk with her. And we're getting really, really close to the end of season two. I feel like I keep saying that. I'm becoming the girl who cried wolf. But this is the second to last episode. 
Next week is the season finale of the show, which I'm really excited to share with you. I hope you enjoy it. I really enjoy recording the season finales. And I just want to take this minute right here to say thank you. I've felt an incredible amount of love and support as I've put out these episodes and shared my stories and my experiences with all of you. It's been a little scary. It's scary to share things that are personal. It's scary to share myself. It's scary to put that out there, which you're going to hear more about in the season finale. But I've been met with so much positivity. And I'm so thankful that somehow the show, it seems to find the people that it's supposed to find. And it's been really special for me to hear from you and to get your support and to know that the show is helping you. So to anyone who has reached out to me, to anyone who's messaged me, to everyone who's helped with the show in big ways and small ways, I just wanted to say thank you. This is one of the best things that I've ever done. And in some ways, it's been really hard and scary. More details coming in the season finale. But in other ways, it's been one of the best things that I've ever done for myself. And I'm so happy to have your support. And your support is one of the reasons for that. So thank you so much. I'm excited to close off season two. You'll hear more about season three in that episode and when it's coming. In the meantime, be very kind to yourself, be very gentle and soft with yourself, and enjoy whatever your day brings you today. And I can't wait to catch you again next week. Bye.